This episode of The Dig is sponsored by our Patreon supporters and by Oxford University Press, which publishes a lot of excellent work, including books by guests on this show. Today, I want to tell you about The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity by Tom K. Wong. Wong analyzes more than 30,000 congressional votes in immigration policy, examining the increasingly partisan divide and the role played by immigrant residents in shaping policy. It also provides an excellent, concise overview of American immigration politics and makes for a handy reference guide. The Politics of Immigration, Partisanship, Demographic Change, and American National Identity. You can save 30% on Oxford University Press politics books with the coupon code DIG30, that's D-I-G-30. Some exclusions apply. Visit oup.com backslash academic. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Under Trump, the media has become a part of the story like never before. Journalist probing has irritated our touchy president and, in response, been labeled the opposition party and the enemy of the American people, accused of peddling fake news. Media outlets have also, however, played a critical role in Trump's rise. During the campaign, cable news provided him with wall-to-wall free advertising. And for years, many in the media have broken their trust with readers and viewers, laundering the Bush administration's case for war in Iraq in 2003, and, more recently, lauding Trump as presidential because he decided to attack Syria. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. What did they hit? What are you convinced? More generally, the fact that most reporters didn't see Trump coming was not just a failure of political journalism or polling methodologies. Rather, it reflected a troubling groupthink developed in the moneyed cocoons of New York and Washington. From there, everything looked fine. For many Americans, however, everything was going to hell, and fast. I can't think of anyone better at quickly cutting through the horrors and banalities of mainstream media spin than Adam Johnson, a writer for the leftist press watchdog Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, or FAIR. Johnson also is a frequent contributor to The Nation and The Los Angeles Times. Adam Johnson, welcome to The Dig. Hi, how are you? Great. Thanks for coming. So Bill O'Reilly, who has perhaps done more than anyone else in this country to turn it into an ideological Superfund site with his toxic rants, is also a serial sexual harasser, allegedly, and is out at Fox. What's your obit? Bill O'Reilly was known for for having the eldest demographic in all of cable news, including um, Fox News. And as anyone to grow up in a household that watched Fox News as I did and had, um, you know, had, had elderly relatives and grandparents who watched Bill O'Reilly religiously, uh, you saw a transformation take place. I, I think that it's hard to pin those things down, but I, I do think that he was 
you know, on the vanguard of a very kind of uh, sophisticated propaganda machine that we, you know, we sort of took it for granted because it's been around so long, but it really has had, a, a, I think, a very lasting damaging effect on people. And, um, you know, it's, it's too little too late, but I guess it's, it's good he's gone. Uh, he's been a purveyor of white supremacy, of incitement to violence against abortion doctors, um, of you know spreading myths about welfare queens, handouts, all that good stuff. So um, it's a shame it took it took 20 years, I guess. But it, it's, it's, I'm glad that he's off the air. I take it that you don't think that Fox News is about to become a dramatically less horrible place, though. No, they'll just it's like again, it's like you know they'll they'll just replace him with some other some other hack. Um, I, I would argue that maybe it's slightly better since they won't be as kind of popular, but you know, he'll, he'll keep selling his, his Mick history written by someone else and, uh, probably get some sort of radio show, I think probably, but that's my guess. So he won't go away, but at least he's off Fox. Um, turning to more mainstream media recently, Brian Williams on MSNBC was so moved by Trump's attack on Assad's airbase that he seemed to be having an an on-air orgasm citing Leonard Cohen entirely unironically. The media response generally seems to have been that Trump is acting presidential by bombing another country, which in a twisted sense is is right in a way. There's nothing more in line with what U.S. presidents do than than bomb other countries. Tell me a little bit about the media response to the Syria attack and what we should learn from it. I mean, you know, uh, presidents like anything else, they, they respond to stimuli and, um, they see what the media likes and doesn't like. And his attack on the Syrian uh, military base was almost uniformly accepted as being good, uh, because regime change or some military action against, uh, Syria has been something that has been conventional wisdom within the national security circles for several years now. Um, Obama was a bit of an outlier, uh, and that he he pursued regime change via CIA contras and proxies uh, to the tune of about a billion dollars a year, but uh, sort of refused to do the direct military action because he sort of his foreign policy is kind of a let the CIA do what they want, but we don't want to get the DOD involved. Um, there's lots of theories as to why that is. Uh, probably the most popular is that the, D- the DOD thought a regime change in Syria would have been a total nightmare, uh, and they're probably right. So when Trump did a 180 on Syria and decided to bomb the the Assad government, um, that was praised as a radical shift that was to put him more in line with the conventional wisdom and more in line with what Hillary Clinton would have done and what Marco Rubio would have done, both of whom supported a no-fly zone in Syria, which is, of of course, bombing uh, the Syrian Air Force. It's a a liberal euphemism for bombing. So uh, the poll – I did a – I did a study of the top hundred newspapers and there are, and their editorial boards and 50, um, out of, out of, uh, 47, um, 39 supported the airstrikes, one opposed and the remainder were either, were kind of ambiguous or, or, or unclear. So about 83% of those who weighed an opinion on it, uh, 83% of the editorial boards that had an opinion supported it. Uh, MSNBC, for the first four hours or so of the bombing, didn't have one voice that leveled a criticism against it. It wasn't until they gave Chris Hayes the, uh, the I guess, 12, around 12.30 at night, he had one guy come on and say, well, maybe this isn't such a swell idea. So 
And of course, you had Brian Williams on air orgasms um, that were basically playing B-roll of the DoD launching missiles. They of course never show the missiles landing or what they look, what they actually hit, or what or what happens afterwards. But um, they got some glorious footage that Brian Williams loved. Um, so, you know, uh, Trump knows that if he wants the media to get on his side and to kind of um, start quote unquote saying you know, he's presidential, whatever that means, sort of a silly tautology since he already is president, <laughs> um, that, that he needs to bomb the baddies and, and that's kind of the signals they're sending. And that's obviously a very perverse incentive scheme. And of course you had some liberals like Joy and Reed who were complaining he didn't kill enough Russians. Um, so the criticism wasn't that we had a Republican president starting a new front a new theater of war, which typically one would think would be a liberal objection. It was no, indeed, he didn't do it enough. So this is the weird, bizarre world we live in now. The media reaction to Trump's congressional address in February really seemed to anticipate this in the sense that Trump was effusively praised, one, for not acting like a total maniac in terms of the general standards of Trump maniacness, um, but also in particular because he said nice things about a soldier who he had sent to his death uh, in Yemen. And Van Jones had some comments on this that were particularly um, reprehensible and were the sort of first instance that I'm aware of of Trump being called presidential for for being militaristic. We are blessed to be joined tonight by Corinne Owens, the widow of U.S. Navy special operator. Senior Chief William Ryan Owens. Ryan died as he lived, a warrior and a hero, battling against terrorism and securing our nation. He became President of the United States in that moment, period. There are a lot of people who have a lot of reason to be frustrated with him, to be fearful of him, to be mad at him. But that was one of the most extraordinary moments you have ever seen in American politics, period. Yeah, that's presidential synonymous with with being militaristic. It's it's the there's a there's a kind of machoism. Um, and you see you, you see that unfortunately you see this kind of doubly with female presidential candidates where they have to be bellicose and have to talk about blowing things up and that that's synonymous with being taken seriously. There, there is a very kind of primitive id like fetishization of the military in our culture that views we're making as being presidential and everything else as being, you know, these terms like the world stage, um, you know, which is of course a kind of like macho, like everyone's watching, you know, send a signal, send a message. These are all sort of playground type logic that we use to talk about foreign policy. Um, but they're taken for granted because most of the people who write these things and ele- are elevated to positions of influence and pungentry are are very lockstep. Um, they're very nationalistic. Um, they're typically venal. They're not very smart. Um, and this is the kind of people who egg on a president like Trump, who you know, ten minutes ago they were saying was this crazy madman who can't be trusted, and then suddenly he starts bombing people, and then he's therefore presidential. So. Um, Again, it's a it's a very it's a very pernicious incentive scheme we've we've created where anything that involves macho chest beating and bombing things is 
good and uh, everything else is waffling and flip-flopping and uncertain. And the incentives are particularly dangerous when it comes to Trump. Um, Alex Preen wrote a great piece about this after his congressional address because um, even though he spends so much time pissing so many people off, he is an incredibly profound narcissist who really wants to be loved and likes being praised. So when the media who's been beating up on him all this time suddenly, um, you know, just gives him this warm embrace um, around anything militaristic. He, 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 he's very, it's a message that he's going to receive loud and clear. Yeah. It's a total moral hazard and it is right now the status quo. And again, you, you have Joy Ann Reed criticizing a Republican president for not killing Russians. Um, regardless of how we got here, that is completely batshit. That is not that is not a healthy place to be, um, and that, I think that'll continue to haunt us as as we move forward. And you know, if if there's some other inciting incident that that the Syrian government decides to do, um, or rather that they're accused of doing, then we're going to have even more of this. And um, you know, we're we're in a situation now where where the only way that Trump can disprove that he's a Manchurian candidate is by is by greasing Russians, and I think that's a a dangerous place to be. Well, I think uh, Joy and Reed in the past has revealed that she believes it's actually the Soviet Union, uh, not not Russia. Yeah, she she has she I think twice said that they were communist, and uh, and she also had said that she also routinely refers to the KGB, even though that hasn't been around in thirty. <laughs> um, to me, one thing that's fascinating and you know scary about all of this is that. Um, it's not only a reflection of the media's soft spot for militarism, but very revealing in terms of what the mainstream media and establishment politicians often find so objectionable about Trump, which is more his contempt for decorum and establishment wisdom than his totally atrocious policies. Yeah, it, there, there's a huge premium put on on uh, on form over substance. Uh, so, for example, David Frum wrote a piece that was about 8,000 words long about Trump's authoritarianism that a, bun- that a bunch of people sort of breathlessly shared on, you have to read this, this is a must read. Um, and I guarantee you only 4% of them actually read the thing. <laughs> um, this is true with most of the most long reads. People don't actually read it. Um, and they say, oh, we have to read this it's about authoritarianism. Now, this is written by a guy who support who, who invented the term axis of evil and was one of the main champions in messaging uh, stewards of the war in Iraq that ended up killing a million people. This is someone who just last week uh, reinforced his belief that marijuana should be illegal, um, writing about authoritarianism, which is a joke. Um, so it, it, they have to co- they have to come up with this kind of carve out, this moral carve out, where where Trump is this unique one off threat to democracy, but you can't really, but you have to make it digestible to to both to quote unquote both sides. So you have to sort of indemnify the Republican Party. And this is something that Clinton did in the campaign where she decided to distance Trump from the Republican Party, which in retrospect, I think, was a tremendous mistake, um, not the least of which being because it's not true. He is a he is a natural, logical and organic extension of the Republican Party, with the exception of maybe one or two issues. Um, and I think that when you try to do that, you 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 have to you have to begin to focus on form and on formality and on. On you know, we can embrace dictators and we can fund Saudi Arabia and we can uh, you know sell them arms, uh, and we can support their their bombing of uh, their killing of, of 
tens of thousands of people in Yemen, uh, but we can't do it overtly or we can't be too nice. You know, we can support the basically Fourth Reich in Turkey. Uh, we can put our you know, weapon systems there and our military bases there and they can be a part of NATO, but you can't overtly be nice to them. So there's a, there's a premium that's put on formality and like the pretense of human rights um, that is more important than substance and that Trump broke those protocols and that that really kind of offended or undermined, un, uh, undermined the liberal order of things. Because the liberal order, especially when it comes to human rights, is largely theater. It, it's not remotely consistent. International law is arbitrarily used. Um, the U.S. wipes its ass with international law as a general rule. And so Trump comes along and says, well, okay, like it's all, it's all BS anyway, so what's the big deal? And this kind of gets to the core of like what, of how the national security establishment rationalizes its existence on a moral level. Um, and I think that he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. Don't get me wrong. He's not, he's not like, you know, some Noam Chomsky type who's trying to like tease out American hypocrisy, <laughs> but he's, but he, he, he's sort of doing away with all the form, all the sort of, you know, Davos pretenses. And I think that that really kind of ex is an existential threat to a, a, a sort of um, mythology that you see. And so I think the normal sort of healthy reaction is to say, OK, well, Trump's doing this for all the wrong reasons, but let's not act like, uh, you know, human rights are not arbitrarily applied. Let's not act like international law is not arbitrarily applied. The reaction from others is, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the, the great American, the great Pax Americana is being undermined. Let's all pearl clutch like it's the end of the world. And I think that's kind of been frustrating for leftists to watch because um, liberals are clamoring to hold on to this mythology that is, I think, deeply toxic and not at all tethered to reality. One issue that you've written um, or commented a bit about is media coverage of Trump's alleged Russia ties. What's your problem with, with how this has been covered? There do seem to be some things that need to be investigated, but what do you think that the correct approach to this this subject that would avoid slipping into a new red scare what would that look like my problem is one of proportionality uh which is to say that i i do think there's an underlying story in the russia issue there is a lot of smoke there are connections between especially page and manafort that are like material they're not you know uh but the the sort of Main question is, was the Trump campaign conspiring with the Russian government um, to to undermine the Clinton campaign in a way that was involved illegal hacking? And that so far has not been proven. Um, that should be investigated. There should be a special prosecutor that investigates this that I have never objected to. That seems completely reasonable to the extent to one to which one accepts the premises of national sovereignty. Uh, the United States, as much as I'm, you know, I may detest it uh, in its foreign policy, it's it, of course it has a right to protect its its elections. That seems reasonable to me. Um, the problem is, is that in the absence of any kind of rock solid evidence, and in the absence, frankly, of Trump not releasing his taxes, which I think is the main issue here, and I think to the extent that the Trump Russia story has has spiraled out of control, I think Trump takes a, a plurality, if not a, a majority, of the, of, of the fault for that. Uh, we've begun to kind of plug things in and to, and to indulge a kind of dot connecting that I don't think we would have otherwise accepted. Um, and the Russia story is also incredibly flattering to the national security establishment. And that's a very, that's also a, a very dangerous place to be when you, when you have a, a controversy that 
fuels the war machine, uh, it becomes far more tempting to, to emphasize it um, than it does to not emphasize it. For, you know, for example, Rachel Maddow, I think over half of her coverage has been Russia related. Wow. Um, there was one study that was done at The Intercept. Now, should it be zero? No. Should it be 53%? Probably not. Uh, let's say, you know, back of the napkin math, Chris Hayes does, you know, covers it about 10% of the time. That, that seems reasonable. I don't know. Maybe that's about right. So I think that, you know, the underlying issue is that whenever you criticize the Russia disproportionality, people will say, oh, you don't think it's an issue or you've been downplaying it. Um, but that's not what's going on. You know, the Soviet Union during the Red Scare actually had infiltrated parts of American society. The Soviet Union it did have active measures within the U.S. This is sort of widely accepted. Um, it doesn't mean there wasn't a Red Scare. Uh, it doesn't mean that there wasn't a a disproportionate focus and obsession with it that, at the expense of everything else. And I and I do think that that does exist in a lot of liberal media. Um, and I'm afraid uh, I'm going to concern troll here a bit, but I'm afraid that by putting a huge focus on that. You're, there, there does, it does become, there is, there does start to have opportunity cost. You, you, you do start to lose focus on other things. Yes. You do start to lose focus on, on other things, bad things that are Trump are doing. You do start to disincentivize ex, looking at the existential state of the democratic party in the wake of the loss. Uh, and I do think that there's a huge danger there. And, um, you know, I, I, I try to reach a balance. I, I don't, you know, I don't like people say, oh, well, Russia didn't do it. Well, you don't know that. We don't know if Russia hacked the DNC. You can't say that for sure either way. Um, it seems like something that we should investigate in due, in due course um, and not really make any bold claims either way. Uh, I don't know. My, my standard of evidence hasn't really changed. I've had the same standard of evidence since June of last year when the story broke. And the reality is that there's actually been no new evidence. <laughs> there's been no new evidence that Russia hacked the DNC since the original CrowdStrike report. The DNI report in January didn't have any new information. So they just keep repeating things over and over again. And my standard of evidence has not changed one iota. Um, and that's that, that people will read that as being somewhat in denial because there's this kind of drumbeat that goes on. And if you don't go along with the drumbeat, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're somehow deluded or, or covering, covering your ears to the truth or something. So if and when there is like more rock solid evidence, then I'm ha I'll, I'll be the first person to say this is, you know, this is a big story. But I, I don't, you know, you, you can't assume there's this huge fire because there's a little bit of smoke. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being daft, but I'm, 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 I'm happy to hear criticism from others on, on that issue. No, I agree entirely. I mean, from what I can see at this moment is that Carter Page looks like a dupe if he was instrumentalized in any way. Sure. Um, the way that the Russian agents are allegedly spoke about him was that he was a easily manipulated dupe rather than some sort of um, secret agent man, double agent. Um, and then Manafort and Stone do seem authentically sketchy and deserving of investigation. But as, insofar as Trump himself is concerned, it, what, what, what boggles my mind is how little attention how little attention mainstream outlets seem to pay to the more obvious explanation for why Trump and Putin have or at least had so much affection for one another, which is that they're both right wing masculinist xenophobic nationalists um, rather than it being anything uh, about any kind of illegal underhanded right. um, quid pro quo. Because what's what's the what's the one other thing that Trump breaks on with with Republican orthodoxy? There's two things. The the bellicosi with Russia, which is taken for granted on the right, and the second one is the TPP. 
Um, now, no one has a has an exotic conspiratorial explanation for the TPP. We've sort of just overlooked it. But the reality is, is that it's, <laughs> it's consistent with a with a Pat Buchanan threat of white nationalist protectionism. Um, that is also consistent with not wanting to start. I mean, again, Pat Buchanan was the biggest, um, op, you know, was one of the major opponents to the Iraq War. Uh, this is something that is that has been a thread within white conservatism for a long time. Um, there doesn't really, you know, it's again the question always boils down to: is it ideological or is it conspiratorial? And ideology, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference, right? Especially in my job, media criticism. But I think when in doubt, ideology is typically the more elegant answer. Yeah, I mean, Richard Spencer didn't praise Russia as he said something like the last great defender of white civilization because Russia hooked up the election for Trump, but because he right. models certain types of behavior um, and symbolism that's extremely appealing to white nationalists. It's pretty obvious. Right. Um, and of course, Putin is, is very good at kind of playing all sides in a way. Um, he's, he, is, he is not like a doctrinaire white nationalist, but he, he does know how to push those buttons uh, that a lot of white nationalists like. So, yeah, I think I think that, again, I'm, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop and I and I, you know, it very well could. But I, I just don't you know, I don't know how much longer it go, it's supposed to go on. You know, I, I don't know what the end looks like. Now, there are reporters at The New York Times and The Washington Post and and other places doing, you know, investigating this around the clock, 24 hours a day. And I think that's good. I think they should do that. Um, but the sort of professional dot connectors that that take, you know, random tidbits of original reporting and kind of stick them together into this other narrative, I think, I think can be a bit, uh, a bit diluted and a bit, a, a bit kind of, it, be, it becomes a kind of, uh, fantasy, you know, it becomes its own sort of internal world of, 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 of fanfic where, you know, the people who every day are like, Oh, Trump's going to get, you know, he's going to have to resign within a week or two. And it's like, no, that's just not going to happen. Like, it, it seems like it's not at all related to reality. Hey, this is Dan Denver. You might recognize me from such podcasts as the one you were just listening to. I want to thank you, the listeners, for supporting us on Patreon. I'm a journalist who has spent the last decade covering politics, criminal justice, and immigration at the local and national level. Your support makes it possible for me to do this new podcast venture as a part-time job and to pay all the lovely people who help me out. If you haven't already, please go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and look up The Dig. Five bucks a month is a huge help. That's roughly the equivalent of either five McDonald's coffees, one pour-over, .004 ounces of Glenn Beck's gold, or zero of the bitcoins that the libertarians who don't listen to the show are hoarding to spend on Peter Thiel's island. Your support helps me buy the peanut butter and pay the rent that I need to play my humble role in building socialist politics in the United States. And we have loads of socialist swag on offer. So check it out, patreon.com. Thank you, and back to the show. Tell me a little bit um, about uh, former British Tory MP Louise Mensch, who's become <laughs> a major peddler of Russia-related conspiracy theories on Twitter. You've also claimed that President Putin had Andrew Breitbart murdered 
to pave the way for Steve Bannon, this was the man who founded the Breitbart website, to pave the way for Steve <laughs> Bannon to play a key role in the no, Trump administration. You then said that Mr. No, Bannon is behind bomb threats to Jewish community centers. I mean, aren't you in danger of just peddling wild conspiracy theories? No, first of all, I haven't. And no matter how many times people say this, it's not going to be true. I said on Twitter in a tweet, I believe that to be the case about the murder of Andrew Breitbart. Well, that's what and I just I do, said. But you it's believe not a piece the of, it's not, you, no, you no, believe I President no, Putin I murdered him, don't you? Andrew, I said, I believe it. You said I reported it. Those are two completely different well, you things. You put it out on it's Twitter. You said you believed it. You don't have a shred of evidence. I do. And then there's the game theory guy. Well, well, <laughs> Like, what's going on with all of this? I don't pay enough attention to Twitter to understand, but these people right. well, you, you're, are really... You, you're, you lead a healthy life, yeah. <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah, Thank you. Probably... I try. We're, we're, leave, uh, leave it to weird, um, manic uh, Twitter users like me. Um, uh, but, but, they, but, but they are having a lot of influence, these people, right? You know, they, they... This is the thing. Like, you know, I would say just ignore Louise Minch, but she's on real time with Bill Maher. She gets op-eds in the New York Times, which are notoriously difficult to get. Um, like, it's not like she's a nobody. She has a rather large platform and she has a large platform with people who have a large platform, which is something that can't be underrated. And uh, she's completely off, off the rails. I mean, she's, <laughs> she, the Buzzfeed or mainstream outlet Buzzfeed finally noted that she's accused everyone of being a Russian agent. Finally, that there's been a kind of backlash in, in the more mainstream media, I guess. And I've, you know, she's blamed Russia for the London attack on March 22nd. She's blamed him for the attempt to attack in Sweden last month, or this month rather. She's blamed them for sending a, a strobe gift to Kirk Eichenwald. She's blamed the Russians for hacking her Wi-Fi in her neighborhood. I mean, these things should be the murder, the murder of Andrew Breitbart. The, the murder of Andrew Breitbart. I mean, these things should be prima facie like discrediting, and they're not for reasons that I can't possibly grasp. And she sort of crossed the line two weeks ago when she accused. Black Lives Matter of being Russian, quote unquote, actors, <laughs> you, you know, because that that has some institutional support within the sort of normal liberal media, but uh, or at least superficially, uh, the sort of more corporate D-Ray wing does. And that was that was pushback. And she kind of tried to play that off. And then she accused the other day, Casey Mitchell, who's this kind of sleazy uh, writer for The Daily Beast, who, who accuses everyone of being pro-Putin. Uh, and they're starting to eat their own children. Uh, this is someone who she, you know, who Sarah Kinzior and her should be aligned with. He, he kind of, you know, he accused me of being sympathetic to Nazis because I defended RT. I mean, this guy's a total scumbag. Um, and she accused him of being a Russian FB, FSB, or rather the publication he wrote for. And it's like, you know, when does it stop? Uh, you know, it's like when they, it's like when they accused Eisenhower of being a communist or when, when McCarthy accused Eisenhower of being communist. Now, I don't use the term McCarthyists because I, I think it's a very specific historical meaning. Um, but I do think it's useful sometimes to note when people are to draw parallels when it does. I think someone like Louise Minch is is becoming is is overtly McCarthyist. The only difference is, of course, that Louise Minch doesn't have isn't the U.S. government. That's the major difference. Right. Which is why I don't really use the term. Um, but, yeah, it's completely um I think the, the thing with Louise Minch is that I think she's a symptom of a broader disease. And I think she's useful to discuss in that context, which is to say she's, sim she's symptomatic of a lowering of editorial standards the Russia story has resulted in. We would normally not accept someone like this and do proper kind of liberal discourse. But because she's feeding the narrative, 
and kind of getting those juices flowing and it's anything that makes Trump look bad is, is, is being taken for, for granted. I, I think that it's part of a broader editorial, a lowering of editorial standards that I think is, is actually bad. And it's a lowering of editorial standards, but also sort of a, a lowering of critical standards in many liberal, just everyday individuals' minds of a sort that people, including myself, like typically thought of as kind of unique to the far right Infowars fringe in the U.S. Yeah, I think that she she's the reason what it, it bothers me on a moral level, because I also feel like she's legitimately playing off the fears of low information democratic partisans who, you know, don't necessarily follow these things closely and maybe aren't the most skeptical media consumers. And I think she deliberately panders to those people in a way that's kind of cynical. Um, and there are only, I mean, the only parallels I can really draw are in Alex Jones because, you know, yeah, some, most people, or maybe let's say a, a significant minority of people who listen think, oh, okay, I'm kind of tongue in cheek. I'm sort of aware that this is, bullshit. But I, there's people who buy this stuff and who legitimately think that, you know, what did she say the other day? Warren Hatch is going to become president and like <laughs> point. I mean, this is insane, but people believe this stuff. And it's, it's just, I don't know. It's, um, it's kind of sad. It's kind of, it's kind of mean. It's, 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 it's exploitative. And it's, 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 it's the people who've, I think, boosted that and promoted her and, and, and looked the other way. I think should be ashamed of themselves because I, I do think there are a lot, there's lots of collateral damage here. And, and your hunch is that she's cynical rather than crazy. Oh yeah. She's absolutely cynical. I, I I'm completely convinced she's aware of that. She's full of shit and doesn't care. She's, she's constantly winking and nodding. Um, I, I think, I think she, I think she goes to bed every night saying I got away with it again. One thing I've never seen explained really is regardless of who did the DNC hacks, why on earth it would have decisively shaped the outcome of the election. There are so many things, obviously, that the Clinton campaign did to fuck up and things that Trump did to win. And then in terms of external factors, it seems to me that the Comey letter was a much, much, much bigger and more obvious culprit in terms of swinging the election. It's impossible to say. I I think that the if it was indeed Russia who acted DNC... In, 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 in alliance with, with, with WikiLeaks and then selectively released one side. That, that seems like a classic psychological operations thing to do. Uh, I think it probably would have had a negative effect. Whether or not it would have cost the election, I don't know. But it seems a bit naive to say it doesn't in the aggregate have an effect. Um, do, and to the extent to which it, it, it was weaponized by the kind of more pro-Bernie crowd who were still bitter from the DNC, uh, yeah, that seems likely. Um, again, I, I don't know if Russia did it or not, but if they did do it, that seems like that's a, that's a, here, here, here's a good way of looking at it. Okay. If a foreign government had hacked the DNC and Bernie would have won the nomination and selectively leaked it against Bernie, would we, would we necessarily be that blase about it? Probably not. <laughs> Let's take it one step further. If, if the Clinton campaign had hacked Bernie's emails and, selectively leak things, we would probably be incensed and outraged. So I, I, I want to be fair with like having a consistent standard. I yeah. think that, I think that if indeed Russia did that, it, 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 it would indeed be a form of psychological warfare or whatever. Um, it's important to note, however, of course, America does this all the time. Uh, 
so I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's sort of below board or, or kind of beyond the moral pale. This is something that the United States routinely does. Uh, we routinely run psychological operations to try to influence elections, um, including domestically. So I, uh, I, you know, that seems that seems like a totally fair gripe to have on the Clinton campaign. If indeed it was Russia. Sure. I, I think that's fair. Um, now, is it worse than the Comey letter? I don't think so, simply because of the timing. I think the fact that the Comey yeah. letter was 10 days before the election probably had a more demonstrable effect. And I, I wrote about it on the morning of the election. Um, I, I was like, I cannot believe that the media mindlessly repeated that it was this huge scandal. It, it was actually shocking to me because the, the media was broadly in the tank for Clinton, um, almost without exception. But they, they, they have a weak spot for scandal, I think, that kind of supersedes any partisan loyalty. And they're... They're mindlessly going, oh my gosh, the Comey letter, it's, it's the emails. I was, I was, I think it was probably, yeah. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me that they're, that they're running with this. Like it's, like it's the, like it's this, you know, huge deal. And of course it, there was nothing behind this. There was no substance behind the letter. There was no new scandal. There was no new information. All it said is we've d- discovered new emails. We have yeah. no idea what they say that are pertinent to the investigation. And lo and behold, a week later, yeah, and I thought what, um, I thought nothing what, there. <laughs> I thought what Comey did was was borderline. I mean, I wouldn't say criminal, but it's it's it was ethically very, very, very bad. And, and yeah. it should probably cost him his job, but it won't because the guy he helped win. <laughs> and as the Times reported uh, recently in a kind of deep dive into the the Comey letter that he explicitly didn't release similar information about the status of investigations into the Trump campaign. So, I mean, that makes things even more weird. Yeah. I think, I think that, um, here's, here's, here's the more logical explanation, which is everybody assumed Clinton would win anyway. And that Comey wanted to look objective in the event that they eventually investigated Trump. That, that seems like a pretty logical explanation to me. Um, but then, of course, the unexpected happened, and I think that uh, my guess is that if Comey could do it over again, he probably wouldn't have he wouldn't have done that. But I, that was that was completely negligent. It's, there's no other word, but just I mean, you know, it's depraved indifference is what it is. I mean, this is this is a man of tremendous influence and power on the eve of a major important election that's going to affect thousands and thousands and millions of vulnerable populations, LGBT, Muslims, and he's, he, he's more worried about his image and his career and the, uh, the appearance of objectivity. And, you know, he's this above the fray type guy than he has the material effect on an election. I, I think he should be ashamed of himself. Do, um, earlier we spoke about the incentive scheme set up by the media cheering for Trump taking military action. Do you think that another incentive scheme, a parallel or intersecting incentive scheme was also at play in terms of um, driving him to attack Syria and that being um, the incentive to tell all the people calling him a Putin stooge, look, I just attacked Putin's top ally. In fact, I attacked an airbase with Russian troops on it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you know, whether or not that's by design, I don't know. That's, that's above my pay grade, but, but it seemed to have worked, right? Yeah. We're, we're in a situation now where you have the nominally liberal, nominally opposition party, uh, egging and, and, and begging and prodding a Republican president to be more aggressive towards a country with 2,900 nuclear warheads. Um, whether or not that's by design, I don't know, but you, you sure as hell couldn't have designed it better. 
<laughs> you know, if I'm the war machine. Uh, so yeah, uh, not not bombing Russia is is now is now a sign of of complicity with. I mean, when when they when they first broke the news that Russia had notified, or rather that Trump had notified the Russians, and these liberal drooling like knee jerk dipshits on Twitter were like, oh my god, he let him know. I I I want I literally smashed my head against the the, the keyboard because like anyone who knows anything about the history of American and Russian relations knows. You always let Russia know because you don't want to kill Russian soldiers in Afghanistan. You, you, and you Afghanistan, don't want to turn you don't want to turn a proxy war into an actual right. war Afghanistan, between the superpowers. In the nineteen eighties, the the CIA would bend over backwards to direct the Mujahideen not to not to use their weapons to attack uh, Russians because they didn't want that to come back to them. Uh, the idea of deconflicting with Russians is something that has existed for decades. But suddenly, when Trump did it, it was it was further evidence of a conspiracy. Um, and this kind of myopia and this kind of ahistoric contextualization of the Russian-American relationship is uh, was really, really dangerous because, again, now you're prodding a Republican president to want to bomb Russians. And the only way he can prove his loyalty to his country is by bombing more Russians. And I, the fact that people don't see the moral hazard here I, continues to shock me. The media framing of of conflicts in Syria and Yemen and other places – they seem to be framed in such a way that only certain plausible that only certain solutions seem plausible as a result of the reporting. What's your take on the current coverage of of, of those two conflicts and what sort of policy prescriptions they're implicitly pushing? Well, the Syria conflict is is, I would argue, one of the most uh, and, and all my the reason why I started writing about Syria wasn't because I had any unique um, I when I started off I wasn't necessarily trying to it, I just as a media critic I'm drawn to bullshit and so I go where the most bullshit is and the more the most bullshit per capita of anything is how the media covers Syria um, Ann Barnard who's a reporter for the New York Times just the other day had a had a kind of they have these things called news analysis uh, which the New York Times allows their reporters to effectively write opinion pieces, which is good because you get to find out what they really think instead of their thinly veiled um, arguing. So she wrote this piece that talked to, you know, it did the standard thing that the media does, has been doing since the beginning of the war, uh, which is that America has, quote unquote, done nothing that we've stood by. They, they need to paint this Rwanda narrative about Syria where the U.S. sits there and allows this merciless slaughtering going on while we do nothing. Now, in fact, the CIA has been involved with in the war since at least 2012. They've been involved with it directly since 2013. Uh, the Washington Post says they spend a, they, they spend a billion dollars a year training anti-Assad rebels and anti uh, the anti-SAA rebels. Um, now, this was, of course, omitted from her piece about us doing nothing. Uh, she said, quote, Obama kept this, the war at arm's length, uh, which is, of course, a total fantasy. Uh, to say nothing of America's biggest allies in the region, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, which are, have been arming and funding groups to the tune of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars more, depending on who you ask. Uh, the idea that the U.S. has done nothing in Syria or is, has not been involved in the war is probably the single most popular and most pernicious lie about that war because the implication is that we need to do more. We need, we need to directly bomb the Syrian government because that's the, the, the desires of lots of people, fair or not. Um, and that, that mythology that America has done nothing, that Obama did nothing, is still very prevalent, although it's gotten less prevalent. I feel like the, the media has sort of mentioned it at least a little bit more recently. Um, and 
I, I think that the, the implication being, again, with the Rwanda do-nothing narrative that's pushed by everybody from Joe Scarborough to Nick Kristof, is America needs to bomb and overthrow the Syrian government. Um, and it's never really explained how exactly that's going to lead to something, an outcome that's less disastrous than every other time we pursue regime no, change. No, it never is. Um, the counter-argument they usually say is, oh, well, you know, we did regime change in Libya and that, you know, it's still, it's a, it's a hell, it's a war zone with half the country controlled by jihadists. Um, and they're now selling slaves. Uh, but at least it's not Syria. At least, you know, they throw out the half a million number. Um, well, that would, that would, that, that counterfactual would only be fair if we actually did do nothing in Syria, but we didn't do nothing in Syria. Uh, had, had the U S and Saudi Arabia and Turkey actually done nothing in Syria, it's very likely, and I, it's impossible to say one or the other, but the war would have been over very soon which is to say that the, the Assad government would have clamped down and tortured and killed people and ended the war. Now, that would be bad, but would it be better than killing half a million people? I don't know. You, you, know, you make that decision. Um, so uh, the, 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 the quote-unquote do-something crowd, which is always telling you to do something, of course, they never say what exactly that is, has been pushing for America to intervene on behalf of the opposition for, for you know, five years since it began. And it's, you know, it's the usual suspects, it's the neoconservatives, it's the cruise missile liberals, your Amory Slaughters, your Nicholas Kristofs. Uh, but they can never tell you what the government's supposed to replace it with since the vast majority of the opposition is al-Qaeda or al-Qaeda linked. Um, now, there are, there are secular Democrats within the opposition, they're just not that many of them. And they're not a, they're not a meaningful force on the ground. Um, and any neutral or sober observer of the conflict will tell you that. Now, so the implication is that if and when we actually did overthrow the Assad government, uh, effectively, the United States and NATO in general would become the government of Syria. We would do what we did in Libya, where we basically take over and, and run the government, um, with maybe some help from the United Nations. So that 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 that's what they want. It seems like an, an another upshot of the U.S. is the U.S. hasn't done anything. Narrative is that it obscures the broader proxy war that's going on with the Sunni regimes in the U.S. on the one side and, and Iran and, and, Israel. And, and, and Israel and then and then Iran, Russia on the other. Um, because once you start looking at it through the lens of this regional proxy war that outside powers are are deeply involved with, neither side, both sides start looking pretty horrible. And it's harder to paint the picture of it being a freedom struggle versus a horrible dictator when you have Saudi Arabia involved. We, we like neat moral narratives. We like the idea of the, the evil dictator versus the scrappy rebel and, it, and, it, and the idea that America has stood by as they've done nothing um, because, again, we want a Rwanda 2.0. Um, but reality asserts itself and reality doesn't, like moral narratives. It doesn't like neat narratives. And there is nothing less neat and nothing less morally clear than I think what's going on in, in, in Syria. And I think that the media has tried to, to a large degree, from BuzzFeed to Vice to The Guardian, God, The Guardian's probably the worst, to The New York Times, to The Washington Post, with some rare exceptions, has been trying, has been really holding on to a mythology. Um, and a lot of that's systemic. A lot of that's because there is no actual reporting in Syria because you can't go to Syria, you'll be kidnapped, um, 
and, and ransomed and you can't go to, and if you go to the government controlled areas, they'll call you an Assad stooge and ruin your career. So there is no, there's no actual reporting in Syria. Um, you know, Ann Barnett reports about Syria from about two blocks where I lived in Hamra in Beirut. Um, and it's not to say she's not a good reporter who has lots of contacts there, but like you have to understand that there are filters that exist within Syria that, that the American Western journalists are getting a very specific kind of narrative. Um, and that's just the reality of the situation. I, I don't think necessarily that means that they're all, you know, acting in bad faith, but it's just the nature of the conflict. So there's that thrown on top of it. And I think that that leads to a very warped view of what's going on there. And it's something that's hard to talk about on the left because it's such a, it's such a third rail, um, as many have, have seen, um, because they'll call you a dictator lover or an Assadist or whatever, if you, if you kind of are somewhat skeptical of, of that narrative. Um, and, and I think that it, 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 it's led, it's, it's led lots of otherwise smart people to kind of shut their mouths about the, 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 pro, the topic, I think. And I've had people tell me this offline. Well, seeing the, I think, acknowledging the lack of moral clarity on the various sides of this in, in no way requires any sort of rehabilitation of the Assad regime, which is the nature of which is pretty obvious. And the fact well, yeah, we, 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 we always have to check that box, don't we? Um, okay, yeah, sure. Let's well, check that box. Go ahead. Well, this is I, – I, <laughs> continuing our debate from when we saw each other in person, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a, a bad idea in terms of just describing the situation to accurately describe how much one thinks various sides of a conflict – suck. I don't think it's so much a box checking, but just more of an empirically, uh, but you I, think I just, it's dangerous just, to do that. It's not that it's dangerous. Is that I, I'm not in a position to morally judge anyone in the conflict. Um, for example, like there are people who are, who legitimately hate the government who joined Al Qaeda, who are not these cartoon Wahhabist head choppers that, you know, the other side makes them out to be. These are people who are operating because they're the, because Al Qaeda is the only game in town. They join Al Qaeda. I would never like go to that Syrian whose family was tortured by Assad and be like, how dare you? You know, you're, 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 you're Al Qaeda, right? That's not a very like materialist way of looking at the conflict. Just as I wouldn't go to a Shia or, 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 or Alawi or a Christian who's a supporter of Assad and say, you're an Assadist, right? That's an absurd, like, uh, moralizing of, of the conflict. Um, cause I have no standing. I'm not, I'm not Syrian. I have no standing. All I have standing in is what my government does and what my government has done. Because that's what I have influence over, and that's what I pay for. But um, but reporters have standing to tell the truth as best as they can, and I agree with your criticism of very much of the frame the the mainstream framing of it. But I don't think that precludes. In fact, I think it requires an assessment, an honest assessment of the Assad Assad regime. Uh, yeah. But again, it's, it's okay. So you're the 750th person to jump on the football. Congratulations. Like, uh, it, it's, it's the, the whole point of the, in my, in my opinion, the point of writing in general or reporting in general is to say something new, um, not to just reinforce what is sort of widely accepted. Like, I mean, again, I, I've met people in Syria whose family was arbitrarily detained in, or not in Syria, rather in, in Lebanon, um, whose family was arbitrarily detained and, and likely tortured by the Assad government. Like you can't really go anywhere in the Middle East without meeting a Syrian who's, who's had some episode like that. And that is, that is generally true. Um, and that should, that should not be eliminated from the, I think the broader conversation. Um, 
but there, there, there is, there's a kind of moral pornography that goes on with how people talk about Syria that does deal in binaries. And I don't see, I don't know, I don't see a lot of use in running through the motions on that. Um, on either side, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit, a bit of a, of a, uh, both sides guy here, but I feel like it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's like a, it's kind of a running through the motions kind of thing that I, I find to be a bit tedious, especially since, you know, there, there is, there is some asymmetry in, in who has done what in that conflict. Um, it's like the piece that, um, was in the intercept the other day that said, you know, Hezbollah was, was take, was, was asked by Iran to interfere in the war, which, which is kind of goofy. If you understand the war, it's, it's, I, you know, Hezbollah fight has been, it was involved in the war when they'll tell you their reasons. And it, and it had a lot more to do with the fact that they were legitimately concerned that, that Salafists and, and Al Qaeda were going to literally run over Beirut as they did Mosul and Raqqa, which was a legitimate fear at that time. I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely messy. Um, I want to shift gears to the general matter of Trump's and Spicer's war with the mainstream press. What do you make of the, uh, of, of I guess the origins of of that feud and what interests it serves in both on both sides. Well, I mean, imagine being Donald Trump's press secretary. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could not, you could, you literally could not pay me any amount of money to do that job. What a what a humiliating, morally and intellectually impossible job to do. Sean Spicer is clearly the ultimate, not a very smart guy, and the ultimate cuck is the ultimate cock we'll, we'll do we'll do the job he's told to do because he's probably getting a decent paycheck and he knows he can probably do like the right-wing media circuits for the next yeah i mean trump lies all the time about things that are demonstrably false even more so than other politicians um you know politicians have always lied but trump has taken it to uh, i think a, a meaningfully different higher level of just outright <laughs> saying things that are obviously not true um uh he can they, you know they contradict themselves all the time uh, he, he, he deals in, I mean, I don't just imagine doing that. I mean, it's an impossible job and Spicer is already kind of a moron. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the press hates Spicer cause the press hates Trump and they hate Trump for good reason. Um, you know, I oftentimes say that the press hates Trump and I don't mean that as like a victimization thing. Cause I mean, the, the press hates cancer. I mean, <laughs> some things are just, some things are just objectively bad. <laughs> um, and it's okay that the press hates Trump. Um, but yeah, you couldn't pay me any amount of money to do that guy's job. It, it does seem like Trump has encouraged some positive developments in the mainstream media, like the New York Times deciding to call Trump's birtherism a lie. And yeah, it took, took him a while. Yeah. But they did it. Um, and the, 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 there's always been this fantasy in, in, in mainstream newspaper journalism, obviously about objectivity and balance. But as you said, the media always hates cancer. Any investigative piece in a newspaper is always premised on the idea that wrongdoing is being uncovered and thus is making a clear opinion, uh, putting a clear opinion forward about something being wrong. Um, yeah, I think the one silver lining of Trump is that he, he has effectively he's effectively ended the myth of objectivity in journalism. Uh, which is always some, a very precarious myth, but it's he's exposed it as the complete like moral fraud that it is. And now people are saying, okay, you know, we need to be aggressive. We need to aggressively attack power instead of splitting the difference with person X and person Y. And I think that's probably good, assuming that it lasts 
it lasts longer than his, his term in office. I think that's good. Let's talk about fake news. Um, uh. <laughs> obviously, it's been um, reappropriated by Trump and the Chinese government for cynical ends. But you think it's, well, it was a bit of a problem concept from the get go, right? Yeah, it's been. It, 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 trust me when I tell it. Yeah, it's always those evil Chinese that do it, right? No, we, we did it way before. The term, the term is is bullshit and was bullshit by design, uh, from the beginning. So, there was this kind of general idea that there were these weird spammy websites that were printing publishing stories that were objectively false. That you know, Trump, uh, you know, the Pope endorses Trump or something <laughs> goofy like that. We can look at that and say that's objectively not true, right? Then about. Ten minutes after the fake news thing happened as a sort of moral panic, mostly from BuzzFeed and the New York Times, uh, right before the election, actually, it was a few days, maybe like a week or two before the election, it suddenly morphed into any news I don't like, like really fast. It was not Trump that first abused it. It was corporate media that first abused it. Um, And then it really hit its peak on November 24th a few weeks after the election when the Washington Post published a list of Russian fake news websites that included Consortium News, Naked Capitalism, Black Agenda Report, uh, everything from the Drudge Report to Truth Dig and Truth Out. They did so without irony. They did so without skepticism. They did so with a straight face. Um, The first time Trump used fake news as a pejorative was two weeks later on roughly December 10th. Um, the term had already been killed and abused before the evil Chinese and the, and the Trump regime got their hands on it because the term was just, the term as a sort of unique moral panic was always bullshit to begin with. Um, it was a, it was a post-election scapegoat. Uh, it was largely a way for con- uh, mainstream outlets to, uh, I think snuff out and delegitimize alternative media sources. And, uh, you know, there may be some more sinister intentions as well. I, I don't know, but, um, the definition of fake news became any news I don't like within about 10 minutes. But the, ori- uh, the original definition did refer to something real, right? Which is like the guys who are in their basements um, fabricating these stories to make, to make yes money, no. right? Because the edge cases were pretty clear from the beginning. So, for example, the, fir- the, the canonical study people refer to is this BuzzFeed study that was done on November 16th uh, about the uh, – and the headline is fake news overperformed real news in the, in the weeks leading up to the election. The obvious implication being is that the fake news cost Hillary the election. That's, that's the obvious implication, right? Um, now the examples they gave, they gave 19 examples and they used a very slippery term called overperforming or outperforming rather. What that, but what they don't note is that there's still vastly more quote unquote real news than there is fake news. And that they, what they did is they took the top 20 of each without, without letting people know that one example probably had 50 stories and the other had thousands of stories. So they were already sort of like – the, the way that fake news was being reported was constantly being Ex- disingenuous. Extremely was, misleading methodology. Extreme, extremely misleading methodology. And then there was another uh, study that BuzzFeed uses where they had, they had a few examples from a website called endingthefed.something or other. And they had five of those stories and they used those examples. But the reality is one of those stories was actually true. Uh, it was about an email that Clinton had, had sent that was released by WikiLeaks where she said that Qatar and Saudi Arabia had uh, had funded ISIS. Now that was a real email she had sent. It was a it was a security briefing that some people think was probably Sid Blumenthal. But that was a, that was a real story. That was not fake. That was not a fake story. It was from a website that consistently published fake stories. But that specific story was actually true. 
Um, so there's a lot of false positives from the beginning that were kind of now, of course, they had all their like weird libertarian like editorializing, but the underlying story was in fact true. Um, and so from the beginning, you had a kind of um, very, very slippery slope. Whereas like in the wake of 9-11, I can look at terrorism and say, that's terrorism. That makes sense to me. But we passed a ton of laws and, and, and you know, ha- instilled a lot of social uh, um you know, a lot of words and a lot of social constructs that would haunt us for the next 20 years about what was and what wasn't terrorism within the weeks after 9-11. And, in, and I think we experienced a similar trauma on election day and we kind of rushed to find this, this scapegoat without really thinking through what the implication was. And so now you have, um, you know, Facebook putting up flags when people try to post stories and they're experimenting with it in different ways that say this has been flagged by, by our fact checkers saying this is fake news and they do it about three or four times. Now, I think that when you have a, what is effectively a monopoly like Facebook determining what is and what isn't true, that you really, it really leads you to a very dangerous place. Um, when it's things like, uh, you know, the Pope endorses Trump, that seems somewhat, um, you know, clear cut. But, you know, what if I want to publish a story saying that, um, you know, the Assad regime was set up for the sarin gas attacks? Is that okay? I mean, uh, what if I want to, you know, get into the weeds about whether or not you know, the invasion of Crimea is, I mean, these things are highly subjective, whether or not they're real or fake. And, um, I think that's, you know, governments have an impulse and large corporations have an impulse to control the flow of information. And anytime there's a rush to control information, we should be highly skeptical of it. Hey, this is Bosco Sankara, editor of Jacobin. Uh, I know everyone has a podcast these days, but the dig and Dan Denver are really, really good. And Dan needs your help to help pay the people who work on the show and uh, reproduce their labor power. And as every Marxist knows, it's very important. Uh, To support this show, go to patreon.com and look up The Dig. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the show. Speaking of information freakouts, what's up with all the attention being paid to the Russian government-backed outlet RT? I mean, who who watches RT in the United States? Uh, not many people. So it's there's a, it's a very popular article to write where you hand ring about uh, the influence of RT. Jim uh, Jim Ruttenberg, the, the, the media analyst for uh, the New York Times, who I call the Jay Leno of media critics. Oh my God! Every Monday, I mourn David Carr so hard. It's you know, intense. He's, he's terrible. So he does, he's done like nine, like 75 articles about the dangers of RT. And I, it's like, again, it's the, it's the, it's the easy thing you write. It gets, you know, the, the, the blue check marks will share with a little bit. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, uh, the daily B said their numbers were less than 30,000 Americans watch the average RT show, which is about 0.3% of the, of the viewership of judge Judy. <laughs> so you can, you can take that for what it is. Um, you say, okay, they have some influence on YouTube, maybe, but I think RT probably, I think they fake those numbers too, to be quite frank. Um, so, you know, I could probably go to Times Square and find a hundred people and maybe four of them know what RT is. I, I don't think it's that influential. Um, I certainly don't think that the DNI, the DNI's report about Russian influence in the election should have been 40% about RT. Uh, you know, they're making these bold claims about a massive global conspiracy um, and hacking the DNC and, and almost half the report is about Russia today. I think that, and by the way, it was a report from 2012. They just recycled. I think that's kind of, um, t- a tad embarrassing. It seems like they're kind of, they're kind of, 
they're kind of grasping at straws, in my opinion. So, look, RT will be this boogeyman. Uh, they also want to stigmatize RT, so you're not on it. They don't want people to go on RT. They want it to be a kind of career ender to work for RT. That's one of the other benefits of constantly panicking about RT. So now we're going to turn to a listener question. Hi, Dan. My name is James Frederick. I have a question for Adam Johnson. Um, I'm a reporter also, and I get very frustrated um, with discussions about whether a, a reporter should have their own political opinions. I, of course, have my own political opinions and make decisions on that, but I also think I'm a good enough reporter that I can have opinions and also report on facts and make good arguments based on those facts. Um, but I feel like, especially in mainstream or political reporting, there's the idea that reporters shouldn't have opinions, that reporters should be, um, you know, unbiased in everything. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the ideal world of this looks like of reporters who obviously have opinions can be upfront about those, but can also report well? Thanks. So I think it's important to note that, that, that all reporters almost uniformly have opinions and they express those opinions. What you're not allowed to have is an opinion that is partisan. So as long as something is bipartisan, right, um, you know, the, the sort of necessity of the war on terror, the evilness of, of the Russian and Syrian governments, as long as it's sort of a bipartisan consensus, it's completely standard for people to have an opinion. So it isn't that journalists can't have opinions, it's that they can't have opinions that are controversial, and those are not the same thing. So uh, yeah, I, I think that um, it, it all depends on what your genre is. I obviously operate in a more opinion punditry genre, so I'm, I'm more liberal with my opinions. But the general rule of thumb for reporters uh, about having overtly having political opinions is the degree to which they will offend people who matter. Um, and I think that that is an issue of of ingratiating oneself to a certain kind of uh, class of people and getting jobs at certain places. And it has less to do with any kind of objective, objective virtue of, of being objective, as it were. Right. Finally, I want to turn to the issue of the Overton window in the U.S. press. The New York Times recently named Brett Stevens the Wall Street Journal's deputy editorial page editor as a columnist. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, you had some interesting thoughts on the general situation. You wrote, when one goes to the far right, namely the neocon right, which puts a premium on anti-Arab and anti-black racism and fetishizes American exceptionalism above all else, there doesn't seem to be a line that can be crossed. This is in stark contrast to the other end of the spectrum, on the spectrum, where anything slightly to the left of Hillary Clinton is non-existent in the staff opinion section of the New York Times. All of the liberal or pro-democratic Times columnists during the 2016 primary, for example, were behind Clinton or, at the very least, not behind Sanders or his broader policy aims. Why at a time when socialism is becoming so attractive to such a huge number of Americans for the first time in a really long time, does the mainstream commentariat exclude leftists, especially because it is true, the, the media is, these mainstream publications are run by liberals. Um, why are they so much more welcoming of far-right figures than they are to people who they're ostensibly closer to who are to their left? Because liberals hate socialists more than they hate fascists. It's really that simple. The, the liberals, li liberalism as an ideology exists in relation to power. It is, it is, it is a fundamentally reformist ideology that is that ops that 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 operates as a as a 
safety valve for populist unrest to preserve the status quo. And so the, the right, and even to some extent Trump, is not really a threat to them in any meaningful way, whereas the left is, because their power stems precisely from their ability to punch left and to guard it and to, and to guard the left side of the gates and say, this is the appropriate discourse. Um, that's, that's the very design. It's exactly what the New York times is designed to do. Um, if, uh, you don't mind, I'd like to do a quick New York times columnist lightning round. Um, okay. quick, th- okay. quick thoughts. And if you want to pass, we can, you can pass and uh, we'll just cut it. Um, <laughs> so you, you won't be in, uh, there's no need for embarrassment if you don't have anything to say on anyone in particular. Okay. Um, all right, let's start with Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens is a is a racist who hates Arabs, and he said they have a when he, he said they have he said anti-Semitism was was a disease of the Arab mind, and I'm curious if he thinks after six million Jews were killed by Europeans, if he also thinks it's a disease of the white mind. But um, no, he's he's a he's a run of the mill um, uh, anti-Arab racist and and far right a climate denier. I don't know. <laughs> Paul Krugman. Uh Krugman is, um, he, you know, to some extent he's still good. He's, he's also to a large extent become everything he used to make fun of. He used to make fun of serious people. And he actually, I think even used the defense about serious economists when he was bashing Sanders. Um, he, I think has got, has grown more conservative in many ways. And he, um, I mean, look, the guy's always been a free trade guy. Uh, he's always been neoliberal in his, in his core. He's just not as, um, He's not as mean when it comes to to gutting programs for the poor. So he's been he's been almost like a he's a neoliberal. He's about as progressive as you can be while still accepting the tenets of neoliberalism. So I don't know. It was particularly bizarre to see him embrace uh, Syriza standing up to the troika so uh, fervently, which was great, and then turn on Sanders so hard the second he gained a following. I mean, he's a Clinton guy. You know, people get partisan. They get they get they get behind candidates, and they they that's their deal. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I think it's probably just a thing where he was a big Clinton guy. And so he had to sort of contort his, his, his ideology around that. David Brooks. David Brooks (laughs) is, 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 is is Northeastern grandfatherly racism mixed with a deep, a deeply condescending and patronizing view of, of black people. He, his, read his column. If you want to understand David Brooks, read his column a week after, after Katrina, when he talks about how they need to use this opportunity to re- to privatize the schools of New Orleans, it's it's pretty it's pretty shockingly racist. Thomas Friedman. Thomas Friedman loves charter schools and ISIS. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Friedman, but you're serious. But you're Friedman. actually serious and correct about that. <laughs> no, he 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 half jokingly suggested we arm ISIS, although I don't think he was actually joking. And then he suggested we we not attack them in Syria for the sole purposes of using them as a proxy to kill Hezbollah in Iran. Uh, no, he's, he's a classic militant Zionist. He doesn't, he, he hates Iran more than anything. And if, if Sunni, if Sunni Contras and Sunni proxies want to kill Iranians and Hezbollah, then he's all for it. And yeah, he's a terrible writer. And, uh, he, he basically repeats whatever the, the, the Davos crowd wants him to repeat. I don't know. Maureen Dowd. I don't read Maureen Dowd. I, I, she, she strikes me as somewhat tedious. I don't know. Although she did, a. Surprisingly, she she was the only columnist who was remotely critical of the Libyan invasion. Surprisingly, and of the Clintons, I think generally, if not a Sanders but, endor- endorsement. Uh, oh yeah, well, I I my the way I describe Maureen Dowd is she manages to be the she manages to to criticize Clinton for all the wrong things. <laughs> like she 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 criticizes her in very like sexist like <laughs> like superficial terms. 
You know, it's never it's never like, oh, she has bad policies or this. It's like she's kind of a bitch. Like she just doesn't like her. It's weird. I don't her hatred for Clinton is really unhealthy. And it's it's it does come off as sexist. It's oh, it's oh, read the stuff she did during Obama. It's pretty it's pretty sexist. It's 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 like she's too ambitious. She's not likable. I mean, it's bad. It's like pretty bad. Well, great material from one of the, I believe, two women uh, who have uh, staff columns at the Times. Um, yeah. Moving on to the like, sole non-white. I like Collins. Gail Collins is harmless. I don't know. Okay. Well, yeah. So Co- Collins, <laughs> any, anything? She's harmless. I mean, she's like, I mean, she's pretty like basic. I mean, she doesn't really say anything particularly controversial, but like, you know, boilerplates. Some of her stuff on feminism, I think is pretty good. Um, Charles Blow, who I believe is the only non-white person with the yes. Times column. Uh, he's boilerplate democratic talking point of the week. I don't know. He's to assess some good stuff on race, but it's usually like hyper qualified. I don't, I don't know. It, it is remarkable that, uh, for a, an editorial page, so committed to sort of neoliberal identity politics that they can't even bother to have more than one person of color. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm just shocked that they have, they have so many opinions about, about, uh, Israel and Palestine, but can never, never manage to find a Muslim or Arab to write for them. Remark- Funny how that works. Remarkable. Well, speaking of, Remarkable. speaking of savior complexes, uh, Nicholas Kristof. Nicholas Kristof has basically one job in the world, and it's to find out where the State Department and the DOD wants to interfere with and then run there and find a humanitarian disaster. That's what Nicholas Kristof does. Ross Duthit. Oh, he has, he's, I don't know, he should be writing for the Federalist. He's kind of like, he has a weird fascination with pop culture because he wants to dance around. He wants to dance around what he really thinks about race and and and, and women. So he kind of like talks in code, and he does the David Brooks thing, where, he, where which is what you have to do when you're a conservative who writes for the New York Times, which is reference a lot of books, like all the time for no reason, um, to kind of lend yourself faux gravitas and never really make a point. Because if David Brooks and Ross wanted to like really be honest about what they think they wouldn't be writing for the New York times. So they have to like talk in circles and it just ends up being tedious. Yeah. If, if if they just began their columns with why are black people so poor? Well, yeah, it's, it's it's about time that we ask black people that question that they, they they don't get to write that at the times. Uh, so, so directly. Yeah. You have to have, you have to have your good Northeastern subtle racist Republican columns. Uh, Roger Cohen. Uh, he's okay. He's, I mean, again, it's whenever he, it's the same kind of boilerplate, uh, democratic hawkishness on Iran and Israel, um, mixed with like, you know, idiosocratic solipsistic observations about his own life that I don't, I, I don't find particularly interesting. And lastly, and I find, uh, this person's columns amongst the most perplexing, um, Frank Bruni. Frank Bruni should not be writing for the New York times opinion section. Frank Bruni was an excellent, excellent food critic. In fact, he he just completely eviscerated this restaurant I worked at in 2009, and he called he called the waiters there yummy chew yummy chew to, toys who were hard to swallow, which is one of the <laughs> which is one of the higher compliments I've ever received in my life. Um, and he was a great food critic, but he's kind of an idiot. Uh, he's his political instincts are confused. Um, I don't know. He's just not he just not a, he doesn't strike me as a very bright guy when it comes to politics. I guess my last question is why. Do we we discussed why the left voices are excluded from the Times, um, uh, the the ranks of the of New York Times columnists, but but why are Times columnists so bad? It's like it's like NPR. You can't get fired. When everyone tells me that capitalism is a meritocracy, I'm like, well, look at it, look at the New York Times. Like you can't get fired. 
they'll they just keep wasting away. It's also because they, they flatter the opinions of the people who subscribe to them. Like the average like newspaper subscriber is older, more conservative, and whiter, and like that's who they're pandering to, right? Um, it's 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 they're also there to solidify the conventional wisdom of. I mean, if if the if the top one percent of people in the world, like income wise, got together and hired a public relations firm, that firm would look indistinguishable from Thomas Friedman. Like that's what <laughs> that's what Thomas Friedman does, right? He 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 regurgitates the conventional wisdom of whatever the last billionaire he talked to was, and then he'll oftentimes just promote their companies. Um, so, I, I mean, that's what that's the function of the New York Times. Like you're not you're not going to get a leftist voice in the New York Times by definition, which is why you really shouldn't be looking to the New York times for any kind of, you know, salvation. Right. Um, Adam Johnson. Thanks very much. Yeah. I had a blast. Adam Johnson is a writer at the leftist press watchdog, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, or FAIR. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, engineered by Tristan Rodman, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a glowing review. Those reviews do help put us in front of new listeners. So to spreading the word to your friends. And please find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. <laughs>